Good morning again, my beloved family and friends in Christ. Uh, blessed holiday to one and all. And to all our friends who are visiting with us. Today, I'm Oliver. I'm one of the pastors here in this church. And I welcome you here this morning. As a church, our vision is to glorify God by being a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the gospel and love of Jesus Christ. And to help us understand what disciple-making is, we have been working our way through parts of the Gospel of Mark. And so far, we see Mark telling us that Christ the King has come. And at His first coming, He ushers in His kingdom. And God's people are to respond by following Christ our King in discipleship. So disciple-making happens when we help Christians respond to God's grace by following Jesus, our King, and growing to become like Jesus. We have already spent three messages looking at this. In the first message from Mark 1, we see how disciples are to repent. That is, to turn from sin and to have faith in Christ. To turn to Christ fully trusting in Him. And that we are to be continual repenters, daily fighting our sins and turning to Jesus. In the second message from Mark 8, we see that Jesus is our promised King who must suffer on the cross to rescue us from our sins. And as disciples, we are to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And when we do this, instead of losing, we get Jesus. In the third message from Mark 9, we see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection for the second time. And this is followed by Jesus' instruction on discipleship. And Jesus calls his disciples to follow him in humble discipleship, gladly accepting the course. This week, we are going to look at the Gospel of Mark again, from Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. We see here Jesus predicting his suffering, his death, his resurrection a third time. And this is followed by Jesus teaching on what it means to be a disciple. We see a disciple is first served, then he or she serves. For this message, I want to first thank a friend for sharing this helpful outline in the preaching class. And before we get into today's message, let us pray as we prepare our hearts to the hearing of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, you are a holy and loving God. You created us in everything good. And yet, God, we have sinned against you and rejected you, and we chose to go our own way. And yet, you have shown us grace that in your Son, Jesus, through the good news of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many, we can find forgiveness and pardon. Christ has freed us from captivity to sin, and we have been brought under your rule and blessing. I pray that as we look at your word this morning, I pray in the words of an old saint that your spirit be our teacher and guide, that your word be our rule and authority, that your glory be our first concern. Help me to be faithful to your word, to communicate it clearly, and to exalt you. We pray this for the sake of your church and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. 
the second century Greek philosopher, Celsius. He's a known critic and opponent of the early church. And in an attack on Christians, he writes, okay, I'm paraphrasing here, those who call people to other religion makes this invitation. Whoever has pure hands and wise in speech, come. And again, others say, whoever is pure from all corruption and whose soul knows nothing of evil and has lived well and righteously, come. Such are the preliminary urging of those who promise purification from sin. But let us hear what folks, what folk this Christian calls and invite. Whoever is a sinner, they say, whoever is unwise, whoever is a child, and in a word, whoever is a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. Do you not say that a sinner is he who is dishonest, a thief, a robber, a poisoner, a godless fellow, and a grave robber? What others would a robber invite and call? Why on earth this preference for sinners? Celsius captures well just how upside down the kingdom of God is and just how confusing that can seem to unbelievers. We see here again the upside down nature of the gospel and the kingdom of God in this portion of scripture from Mark. We see how the king dies on the cross as a ransom for many. How those who are great in the kingdom of God are to be servant of all. All of this seems upside down compared to what the world thinks and values. So if you have your Bibles, please grab your Bibles and follow along with me in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, we see Mark telling us, telling his readers, that the disciple is first served by Christ, who ransoms us from our sins, and then he serves others. And as Christians, we are to respond to Christ serving us by gladly serving others. So let us look at today's Bible passage. Today's Bible passage, we are first served, then serving. Remember again the context for what we are looking at. The first eight chapters of Mark actually tells us the identity of Christ, who, Jesus, who this Jesus is. He is the long-promised Savior King predicted in the Old Testament, come in power. And in the second eight chapters of Mark, Mark covers the work of Jesus, what Jesus came to do. And what Jesus did was altogether something altogether unexpected to the disciples. We said in the last two sermons in Mark 9 and 10 that the disciples with Peter's confession of who Jesus is knows that he is the long-awaited promised king and deliverer. But they do not understand that our saviour king is also our suffering servant who will do his greatest work on the cross. So when Jesus twice repeated his suffering, rejection, death and resurrection in Mark 8 and Mark 9, the disciples were surprised and shocked and did not believe Jesus. They had expected a powerful political and military king to come to deliver the nation of Israel from Roman rule and not a weak suffering servant who will die condemned as a criminal. So will you be served by Christ? So follow, please follow with me as we pick up the story of Jesus as he predicts his death 
and resurrection for the third and final time in Mark 10. We read in Mark 10, verse 32. And when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And if you drop with me down a few verses, we see in Mark 10.45, where Mark writes for us, what is the key verse, what must be the key verse in the Gospel of Mark? Mark records Jesus saying, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we actually catch up with Jesus as he and their disciples, and his disciples, make their way up towards the hill on which Jerusalem is located. And Jesus walks ahead of them, resolute, unafraid, setting his face like flint towards the suffering that awaits him in Jerusalem. And the disciples who follow were astonished. The crowd that follows were afraid. Perhaps the disciples were amazed at Jesus' resolve of steel as he marches up to the persecution and suffering that awaits him at Jerusalem. Perhaps the crowd were afraid as they expect conflict with the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. We actually do not know for certain, but we know that Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them what would happen to him. And Jesus, Jesus tells them clearly in verses 33 to 34 with more details than the previous two predictions what would happen once they get to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them that he, the Son of Man, will be betrayed and given over to the Jewish religious leaders who will condemn him to death. They, his own people, will deliver him to Romans outsiders and who will mistreat him, whip him, and finally kill him. And they will kill him by crucifying him on the cross. But after three days, Jesus would rise. He will be resurrected. But what is the purpose of Jesus' crucifixion on the cross? Why is it that the main trust of the entire Gospel of Mark seems to point to the cross? Remember that, that for Mark, the way he writes his Gospels is that his stories help explain other stories. So we turn back to the passage just before these verses. To the account of the rich young man, we can get some idea on what, what Mark is saying to us. We see that in Mark 10, 26, the disciples, we can see the disciples' astonishment in this verse and their question about who can be saved. And they did this in response to Jesus saying that it's difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what was Jesus' answer in verse 27? Do you remember it? Jesus' answer, With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Man 
cannot save himself, but God can save. And how does God save? God saves men through Christ's work on the cross. We see Jesus predicting his death and resurrection here. And in verse 45, he tells us very clearly the purpose for his crucifixion. Jesus tells us, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' work on a cross is to give his life as a ransom for many, to save many so that they can enter the kingdom of God. And the word ransom used here by Jesus means the price paid, the price paid to secure the freedom of a slave or to set free a captive. The price paid to secure the freedom of a slave or, a pri- or to set free a captive. And more than that, we see in Mark 10.45, it carries an echo of Isaiah 53.10-12, where we see Isaiah's servant of the Lord saying, the Isaiah's servant of the Lord, who will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And in Jesus, the great ransom theme of the Old Testament, of which an example is found in Isaiah 51, 9-11, read earlier by Lap Ming. He finds his fulfillments in Christ. Just as in the great Exodus event, the Israelites were saved out of slavery from Egypt, just as in the return from the Babylonian exile, where the returning exiles were brought back, rescued out of uh, slavery in Babylon, back into the promised land. So Jesus does the same thing for us. Jesus rescues us from our slavery to sin and brings us into God's presence. Jesus, as the Son of Man, with dominion and power, as we saw in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, freely offers his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. As God's own Son, and through his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus freely and obediently offers his life as a substitute in behalf of mankind. Christ as King did not come to be served, but to serve us instead, giving his life to set us free from the captivity of sin. We are forgiven of our sins and we are free from the enslaving power of sin. The king dies on the cross as a ransom for many. For my non-Christian friends here today, would you be served by Christ? Will you trust in him and his work on the cross as a ransom for your sin? For my Christian friends, would you also be served by Christ? For Christ's work on the cross is not only to bear the penalty for our sin. He does so much more than that. You know, in a recent movie, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, nominated for the 2011 Academy Award for Best Picture, we are introduced to the main star, this little boy named Oscar. And Oscar is an incredibly smart young boy with special needs, played by this child actor, Thomas Horn. And his father, Thomas, played by the actor Tom Hanks, was killed in the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. 
on 9-11. Oscar, the boy, isn't close to his mother, Linda, played by the actress Sandra Bullock. And his father, Thomas, in order to help the socially awkward Oscar, used to give him riddles and play scavenger hunts with him all throughout New York City. And after his father's death, the relationship between Oscar and his mother, Linda, worsened. And a year after the death of his father, Oscar, guilt-stricken and badly affected, actually find a vase, okay, a vase in his father's closet with a key in an envelope with the word black on it. And Oscar vows to find what the key fits, believing that if he completes this scavenger hunt, he will be able to make sense of his father's death. And this is where I really like the rest of the movie. For the rest of the movie, we follow Oscar as he hunts down the 472 people with the name Black in the New York phone book. And for those of you who actually watched the movie or will watch the movie, we see him getting into one amazing encounter after another, largely meeting with many sweet New Yorkers who helps him on his hunt. And at this point, I was just amazed. I mean, I've been to the States. Although I haven't been to New York, I know how big city does to the people, right? So at this point, I was amazed and somewhat skeptical that his hunt was going so well. I mean, really talking about New Yorkers here, okay? And, but near the end of the movie, we see why this was so. Oscar's mother, Linda, tells Oscar that she knew all along he was contacting the blacks. And he, she, had visited each black in advance, all 472 of them, and informed them that his son Oscar was going to visit them, explaining to them the reason why his son was doing so, and then asked for their help. The reason why Oscar's hunt largely went well was because his mother had prepared the way and his mother had enabled him to complete his hunt. You see, in a small way, what Linda did for Oscar, we see Christ on the cross doing in a huge way in enabling Christians. We are not only forgiven of our sins by Christ's work on the cross, but the cross also frees us from captivity to sin. That's what ransom means. The cross frees us from captivity to sin. We are free from our slavery to sin. The cross enables us to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Christ's work on the cross not only serves to ransom us, but it also enables and empowers us through the Holy Spirit to live a life of discipleship. Christ's work on the cross serves us by giving us both the motivation and the enablement to live a Christian life. The cross both saves us from our sin and sustains us in our walk with God. So Christians, will you be served by Christ? Will you daily remember and trust in His work on the cross that enables us and to live that out in your lives. After we have received such grace from God through Christ, 
Will you serve others? Will you serve others? And we see in Mark 10, verse 35 to 44, how Jesus continues in his instructional masterclass on discipleship and tells his followers that a disciple serves others. We read in Mark 10, verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to seat one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who exercise, those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. Right after Jesus predicts his suffering, death and resurrection, who comes along but James and John, part of Jesus' inner circle of three, which includes Peter. So they come up to Jesus and they make this bold request of Jesus. You know, you can almost imagine their eagerness as they seek to get a heads up over the rest of the disciples. And Jesus asked the brothers, what do you want me to do for you? And they answered Jesus, and in doing so, they exposed their true motives. They want to sit with Jesus on his left and right in glory. They want honor and prestige. You know, on the surface, it seems as if they want to honor Jesus because the Jewish customs of the day have it such that, you know, the place of highest honor was at the center of the company. So it's telling, they're telling Jesus, Jesus, you take the center place, you have the highest honor. And then what follows next is the right hand and left hand respectively. They, re- they have the next level, lower level of honor. And as I was reflecting on this, it's almost like what we see in modern Hong Kong triad movies, you know, with the big boss in the middle. Okay? And we see the triad lieutenants, you know, his close, his close trusted lieutenants on his left and right hand. So while they are actually giving honor to the big boss, the left and right hand men also receive the honor. And that is what we see of James and John's motive. Like what we see of the tried lieutenants in the movie, their motives were less than noble. They had hoped to honor Jesus by placing him in the middle, yet at the same time seeking to honor themselves. As one commentator writes, we see how easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest can be masked as worship 
and discipleship. Our fallen sinful nature can even deceive us that we are doing things and ministry to honour Christ while in actuality we are serving ourselves and seeking our own name. What is your motive for service and ministry? Is it to honour Christ? And that's the constant question I ask myself as well. And Jesus responds to your selfish requests saying, you do not know what you are asking. James and John do not understand the implications in making this request. You know, perhaps in their mind, they think that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and this means that Jesus will at this time establish an earthly kingdom through political and military might and they want to get in on the action and reap the benefits. And Jesus in response asks whether they think they can drink the cup that Jesus drinks and be baptized with the baptism with which Jesus is baptized. The cup here is like a metaphor for suffering. And baptism is a metaphor for being plunged into great difficulties and calamities. So Jesus, in essence, is asking them whether they are willing to share in his suffering and trials. And James and John, full of the usual bluster, you know, with their self-confidence, not fully understanding, answer glibly. We surely can. Now what is a little hardship if Jesus will give us seats of power and honour? Jesus replies that they will indeed share in hardship and trials. But the assignment of the seats of honour is not up to Jesus, but it's up to God the Father. And when the rest of the ten disciples hear of James and John's request, expected, as expected, they become indignant and angry at them. How dare they get a jump on them in the game of one-upmanship as they jostle for authority and power? We see here the ambition of the disciple is in stark contrast to the upside-down nature of the gospel. Jesus calls his disciples to him and gives them his final instructions on the true nature of discipleship. What does it mean to be a true disciple? They are not to be like rulers of the world who seek prominence and lord over others, who exercise their power and authority with a heavy hand. This shall not be the case among Jesus' disciples. Jesus tells them instead that whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus redefines greatness as greatness in service rather than greatness of power prestige and authority. Those who want to be great must serve others. And to press in his point, Jesus goes one step further, telling his disciples, if they want to be first, they must be slave to all. And this is amazing, because if you get it, in first century Rome, a slave was the lowest of the least, with no right or authority or power. Whatsoever. We see that the chief value in God's kingdom is service to others. Those who are great in the kingdom of God are, servant, are to be servant of all. That is because the desire for power and dominance focuses the attention on self, and this kills love. For love 
by nature is focused on others. And Jesus concludes in verse 45, which we already looked at, which we looked at, anchoring the serving of others on his example of service and love. How Jesus himself served as example by serving others by his work on the cross and loving many by giving his life as a ransom. Will you follow Christ's example of service? Will you serve others? What will be your response? What will be our response? Jesus, through his work on the cross, has paid the ransom for our sin and removes both the penalty and power of sin over us. He also enables us to live as his disciples. What then can be our response? Firstly, as you see are the three points on the slide behind me, you must first be served by Christ. You must first be served by Christ. For the non-Christian among us, you may think that you are free, and I say this in love, but in actuality, you are in captivity. Will you trust in Jesus as a ransom for you, paying for your, the price on the cross to free you from your captivity to your sins? If this is your decision today to trust Jesus, you can look for any of the pastors and elders after this service and we will be glad to speak with you. For Christians, for you and me, we still need to be served by Christ as we daily trust and rely fully on God. Through Christ's work on the cross, His power, His purposes and His resources are available for us to grow in Christ's likeness and to follow Christ the King in discipleship. Because we have been served, we can serve others. And this is the link I put to you, my brothers and sisters, between gospel grace and gospel obedience. In the Bible, what we are to do in response to God is always preceded by what God has already done for us. We obey God because God first enable us to do so. We do because God has really done. The cross both saves us and sustains us in Christian discipleship. So will you daily trust and rely fully on Christ? Secondly, as a disciple, you need to embrace the upside-down nature of the gospel. You see, as we see here, as we see largely in the Gospel of Mark, the values and ethics of the kingdom of God is upside down compared to the values and ethics of the world. What is seen as lowly by the world is esteemed as greatness in the kingdom of God. As Christ's disciples, we need not, we need not only be, to be saved, but we need to have our minds continually transformed so that we perceive church and the Christian life from a worldview based on gospel values and not based on worldly values. The world desires power, authority, and prestige. But as Christians, we recognize that true greatness is true service. I remember uh, Pastor Peter Lin, in his last message in this church before he left for his studies, he tells us the story he told us a story of when he first came to Grace Baptist Church and he first met one of the leaders in the church. 
and he thought that the church leader was actually a caretaker. Because this particular leader was dressed in an old white t-shirt and was wiping the tables and cleaning the rubbish. The world thinks that this is embarrassing. But to us Christians, understanding the upside-down nature of the gospel, we should view this as commendable. It's a commendable example of following Jesus in serving others. Lastly, as a disciple, you serve others. We follow a king who serves us by dying on the cross. So we too, in turn, should serve others in the church. How can we serve one another? We must first want to serve others, which comes about from a heart transformed by the power of the cross. Once that happens, our eyes will be open to the many needs and opportunities available. The possibilities of teaching children's Sunday school, youth Sunday school, Christian education on Sunday classes, helping in ushering the welcome table, in visiting and encouraging the sick and the shut-ins, just to name a few. You know, you can surprise the leaders by asking us, how can you help by serving? But do not just restrict your service to organize ministry opportunities. If you have the heart and the eye to serve others, you can find many personal and informal ways to serve others. And as you serve others, you follow the model of Christ our King. So in conclusion, my brothers and sisters, we see in today's passage, the Gospel writer Mark tells his readers that a disciple is first served by Christ who ransoms us from our sins. Then he serves others. As Christians, we are to respond to Christ serving us by gladly serving others. So will you be served by Christ? Will you serve others? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, which removes the, both the penalty and power of sin and evil over us, and that now we can live free from conquered sin, to live as your disciples, enabled by your grace. I pray for all of us here that this gospel truth will dwell in our hearts and grow in us a love for Christ Jesus. Set our affections for Jesus and Jesus alone. Continue to give us enabling grace as we, as a church, seek to follow Jesus in discipleship by serving others, so that by doing so, we will magnify the name of Jesus. In Christ's name, Amen.